I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I am your host, Justin Bua. People just call me Bua. And my co-host, what an articulate PhD art historian, Lizzie Dastin. Uh, Lizzie, we are back. We're back in person, which I really love. This is our second show in person. It's so good to see your face. I've really enjoyed it. I'm grateful for Zoom. It's a portal that we can use when we're not able to be here together. But what a treat to get to have this dialogue with you in the flesh. Yes. And also, I want to thank everybody because we've been getting a lot of uh, incredible, wonderful write-ups. And please leave a review. All of them are not great. All of them are great for Lizzie. <laughs> not for me, but they're, they're really, uh, but a lot are just so thoughtful, so insightful. And I get DM'd all the time on Instagram. And it makes me realize how important this show has been and become to so many people, which I really love. Uh, so thank you for supporting us. You know, we do this because we love this. We don't do it for the uh, for the money, obviously. We're not making any money. Eventually, Spotify will give us a Joe Rogan type deal or something like that will <laughs> happen. But if it doesn't, it's okay because Lizzie and I really love art. And I don't know many people in the world that know as much collectively as as we do. So that being said, we are going to talk about somebody that Lizzie probably knows a lot more about than I do, but <laughs> Rene Magritte. Rene Magritte is a Belgium painter who everybody knows is a surrealist, right? Part of I mean that's that's how people know him, right? Saint Paul and Peep. That's right. He's he 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 is like I'll say this there's some artists that have like classics, right? Like I would say if you are in the hall of fame of artists, you have a classic. So like Da Vinci has Mona Lisa, Michelangelo has Sistine Chapel and David. Those are the, like the, the hits, right? Like Led Zeppelin has the Stairway icons. to Heaven, right? You yeah. know what I mean? Like every artist that is a real great artist has that classic image. And Magritte has many. They've been used everywhere. Even the CBS logo was taken from his eye. Did you know that? I did. And yeah. the craziest Magritte, the transmutation of his from the fine art space into just our normal lexicon is that he, one of his icons, one of his leitmotifs that he just carried throughout his career is an apple. And his iconic self-portrait of uh, a man that we know to be Magritte wearing a bowler hat with an apple that's just floating in front of his face. And that's just one of many. And, he and where's worked, that apple from? Well, I was going to say where it goes. Okay. And the apple, so eventually the Beatles, I believe it was Paul McCartney, mm -hmm. he acquired one of Magritte's paintings of an apple. And then because of that painting, titled a corporation Apple Corp. And because of that, that's why Steve Jobs named his computer and company accordingly. Really? Yeah, so the Apple computer is because of an artist. Because of Magritte. Yeah, because of Magritte. And the Apple was also their Let It Be album, right? Yeah. That, I mean, dude, that's that's very... Wow, I had no idea. So Steve Jobs is only Steve Jobs and Apple is only Apple because, <laughs> because of, Magritte. of Magritte. But it shows you, right? The power of the artist and symbolism echoes into 
forever into now into tomorrow that you can't say that about most things that's how powerful people go well you know art art is powerful art is so powerful that we don't even know we unconsciously don't even realize how it imprints itself in Steve Jobs concept of the biggest <laughs> you know the biggest corporate innovative technological craziness of ever no you're right and we have no idea that when we buy a cell phone when we buy an iPad that we are subconsciously honoring one of the great <laughs> surrealist artists so I just think that that's really cool how art he would not be happy with that no I think, no, I he, think would. he would be indifferent I heard he was always indifferent <laughs> no really right. I heard he was kind of like that he wasn't like it's interesting right he was a surrealist but he wasn't Dali Dolly was just so in your face and he wanted to be photographed and go on talk shows. And I think Magritte was more reticent. Yeah, he was had a laid back disposition. He didn't want to be was with the same woman for 45 years. I mean, he was a different kind of guy. And he painted her over and over. So there's a seriality of his own self inquiry and also a seriality of his romantic relationship with his wife, which I think is very sweet and charming. And before we get to the specifics of his paintings, mm -hmm. I know that we've talked about surrealism in a couple of podcasts, but just to give a very brief synopsis, surrealism was an interdisciplinary movement that included literature and also fine art and magazine publishing that was international. We have American surrealists and French surrealists. And so it isn't just a European-centric movement. Mm -hmm. It found its voice and its footing in multiple countries throughout the Western world. And it really started to launch in the visual world in the 1920s, maybe 1924. And it's all about unlocking the subconscious mind mm -hmm. and using a practice called automatism, which is just freeing yourself of your rational thought and logic to basically be a conduit for what's really happening in your soul mm. and in your body without filtering your imagery, filtering your narratives through some kind of guided force. And so doodling became really popular mm -hmm. or the painting, the evocation of dreams. Mm. And Magritte is similar to Dali, in the fact that his style is more veristic. So it's Wait, explain veristic to our viewers and especially me, who knows <laughs> not doesn't know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, sure. So a doodle is gonna be something that looks like it's non objective, it's abstracted, mm -hmm. but veristic is more of the truth of a representation. And so mm. Dali is a veristic surrealist because when you look at his persistence of memory, you recognize a clock, you recognize a landscape. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost a trick, and the same is true from Magritte, where your brain feels like you recognize mm -hmm. what you're seeing, and yet you can't make sense of what it means. Because it's in a different form. It's melting, you mean, right? Yeah. Well, in the case of Dali, it's melting. And in the case of Magritte, apples don't normally float in front of faces or nor he, occupy entire rooms right right exactly and then there's an eye but instead of the white of the eye it's a cloud right. and so we recognize clouds we recognize eyes but we still hold the space of a paradox where two 
supposedly contradictory things are both happening at once. Mm. And I think that was Magritte's way of playing with reality, Mm -hmm. is that he's presenting us something that looks like it is reality, and yet it's been altered. And a really famous example of that is his work, The Treachery of Images, which is my favorite of his paintings. I think it's the most significant. I believe it was painted in 1936, and it's also subtitled Sassina Pazum Peep. And here we have a completely representational image of a pipe, an old smoking pipe. And then in French cursive, right underneath it, is the phrase Sassina Pazum Peep, which is this is not a pipe. Mm-hmm. And so there are so many ways of approaching this work. And the first could be a humorous one because obviously he's painting a pipe and then he says it's not a pipe. And Mm -hmm. so isn't that funny? Because of course it is. And that's one layer. Mm -hmm. And then if you go a little bit deeper, what Magritte is saying is totally right. It's not a pipe because you can't stick tobacco in it and smoke it. It's a representation of a pipe. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the artifice of visual imagery. And that's why I think that he's also a conceptual artist because he's questioning the very nature of art. It's not a pipe, you're right. When we have this illusion of space, it is just but that, it's an illusion, it's not real. You can't grab it and use it. It's not a functional object, it's a signifier of an object. And then he goes a step further and he really encourages viewers to question authority. And in this case, where do you, where do you give, who do you give the authority to? Do you give it to the image or do you give it to the denial of that image, which is the text? Is it language? Is it a visual? And which one takes precedence over the other? Mm -hmm. And I think we're used to seeing this seamless interplay between language and image. And Magritte is like, actually, these things are in contradiction to each other. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, that was very well spoken and well described because I didn't even know that was called treachery of image of images images yes I, I always thought it was called Saint Paz and Peep it's at the museum the Los Angeles County Museum of Art that piece I think so yeah so uh yeah and that's fascinating what you said also was fascinating because I think without images like that specifically that one there would be no Warhol right? There would be no Campbell's soup. There would be none of that image. I, I don't think that would ever, there would be a bridge that would not have been laid out for you, for war, uh, a Warhol to cross to get to that conceptual space to come up with that idea. I think he bridged the gap. So it is surrealistic for sure, but it goes into this iconography that might not be pop cultural iconography, but it is iconography which makes us think about what what is going on here. Because forever, we've had artists uh, perhaps dismantle the idea of a still life like Cezanne, right? And Cezanne's dismantling it in a different way. But all of a sudden, he basically does a still life or a rendering, albeit floating, which he does in many of his pieces, right? He's a, and, and, and then he makes us question about what is really going on here? Like we're not used to seeing it in that context. We're used to seeing, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna reference Chardin, who was one of my favorite still life artists. That's a 
that's a still life. That everybody understands that it's beautifully painted. Perhaps it's impressionistic. Uh, he he's, he uses a wonderful palette. It's it's just delicious. You know you could you know what I mean. He's got a textural quality to it. Chardin. He's just what a great. But it's it is what it is. It's a still life. You know he takes all these things that are usually put in still lives and and brings it into this surrealist context that makes you think about what what is he doing and i feel like everything you said is is spot on but perhaps maybe there's even more of a personal narrative that's going into this right perhaps what i'm feeling in a visceral way is a loneliness mm. there's like a, a weird kind of loneliness because a lot of his paintings we feel i feel lonely claustrophobic isolated and that harkens back to his his history of his mother killed herself when she was when he was 13 mm. and and they had to lock her in her room because she was always trying to she she eventually just threw herself into a river and they think they found her uh they found her weeks later uh beaten up by the just the 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 industrial uh weathering of 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 her just all of the boats and everything that, that ravaged her body and i think that she's i think that he was very affected by that and his you you could feel this weird almost subtle anxiety in his work i feel anxious oftentimes when i see it because things feel constrained even the sin and peep it really vacillates between being really funny and humorous and in that way, right? Oh my God, that's clever, that's humorous, that's funny. But then if you start to look at it more, especially if, if you really look deeper, perhaps if you're stoned or if you're, <laughs> you, or whatever, you go, whoa, this is really makes me feel anxious. Yeah, and I think that the trope of anxiety or loneliness or both that you're picking up on is really insightful. And I didn't know that about his biography, but just thinking about his oeuvre, there's a painting that he did called The Lovers, yes. which is the classic art historical synecdoche of romance, right? The classic kiss. And it's almost cinematic. But, but, COVID, but COVID. <laughs> right, it is. It is. That's funny. It is actually a COVID kiss. So we see the cinematic, the, I, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a term when two characters finally kiss. It's like the cloche. Okay. And instead of seeing their faces, they're both wrapped in some kind of cloth that looks mm -hmm. like their faces in bags. And so they're kissing, but they're not actually touching. And so to get back to your your insight into the loneliness and that feeling of isolation, even though these figures are caught in such an intimate moment and we as a viewer get to witness it, they're not actually touching. There's still a barrier between mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to that dialectic of concealing something. So we're uh, the faces themselves are being concealed. The actual physicality of touch is being denied, but also mm -hmm. revealing something else. And we, the viewer, were also invited to be a voyeur, but we expect this lustful, concupiscent moment. And instead, we see something that feels creepy and mm -hmm. alarming and almost violent. And so this act of sexuality turns into a visual expression of violence and it's very interesting. And so I think that he subverts expectations at every turn. Sassine Pazumpeep, he subverts the expectation of language. And in The Lovers, 
he subverts an expectation of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it is that removal, the denial of what we want as a viewer, that is forcing us to isolation and loneliness and anxiety because you feel anxious when there's space between what you expect and what's reality. And that's where anxiety lives. That's where it's bred. And so I think that he creates anxiety in his viewers by denying us what it is that we expect to receive. And I think a lot of his friends would always say that, you know, there was kind of this underlying anxiety in terms of his, who he was and how he, how he lived life. Uh, and, and I, I guess you, you do feel that. And you also do feel the, the claustrophobic nature. And perhaps that goes back to the fact that they kept, his, you know, his mother locked in a room all the time so she wouldn't go kill herself because she tried to drown herself several times before as well. Uh, and I think that he had to kind of live with that. And as we know, with early trauma, it's hard to get through that, you know, if you're not if you're not doing some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'm sure back then they, they weren't doing, and you know, and even if you do that, you know, trauma still sticks with you. And I think that he 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 had a he had a very kind of tortured existence. In fact, just biographically going back, uh, you know, he did spend a lot of his early childhood in the graveyards, in the cemeteries, and that was a, that's when he first saw a painter that was painting there and he was like yeah that's what I want to do I want to I want to become a painter and I think that early the early influence of the trauma and tragedy of of losing his mother and just his environments in Belgium where he was just for whatever reason kind of fell in love with the landscape of the cemetery and that kind of dark doom gloom that does enter his work that claustropho- and that claustrophobic feeling of perhaps putting a clouds on the wall that there's you know something else out there or the beautification of what feels to be dangerously uh, tight and anxious. Yeah, this is fascinating to me because I really think the biography that you're sharing is informing an interpretation of the work and they're So often, the biography of the artist, it runs concurrently to the work that he or she produces and informs it in really meaningful, special ways. And I remember Magritte is one of the first artists that I ever saw and liked. And when I was a child, the way that I was able to access him was through joy and whimsy and Mm -hmm. humor. And I'll (laughs) never forget this one solo show of his at LACMA. They did a retrospective of Magritte and they completely carpeted the space, the gallery, with cloud carpets. Mm. And I thought, that's a little kitschy, but I love it. And I was a kid just running around the halls and thinking it was so fun Mm -hmm. and finding the cloud motifs and the paintings and then walking on it. And it's supposed to be the sky, but now it's the ground. And so I think that approaching it from that perspective is valuable. But now as an adult, learning more things, experiencing more things, the gravitas of his work and all of the the experiences that you have looking at it, the anxiety, the claustrophobia, the fear, the almost this this 
presupposition of death. It's like mm-hmm. a memento mori too. Mm-hmm. It's all still and frozen mm-hmm. and that creeps in too. And so I think what I find so dynamic and robust about his work is that everything is a paradox. These two things mm-hmm. are held equally and they're both always equally true. And that goes back to surrealism too because such a concept is doubling and how one of something isn't particularly strange, but Mm -hmm. then when there are multiple, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it it seems like it's in a dream space. Well, you know, and let's not forget that he was an avid reader of Edgar Allan Poe, which was very dark. I mean, Poe, I I read a lot of Poe as a child because it was so artistic. It felt like a uh, Katie Colwitz etching blended with a you know, blended with the texture of a of a Rembrandt, with a with a smattering of uh, Leonard Baskin, who was a, a great uh, pen and ink illustrator, but it has that kind of dark, dark <laughs> story and dangerous outcome to all of his, you know, to to all of his stuff, and you know, uh, as well as Lewis Carroll. You know, he read a lot of Lewis Carroll through the Looking Glass, uh, Alice in Wonderland. This is where perception is challenged and you see perhaps you know one drink one pill makes you smaller the other one makes you big and and he played a lot with scalability and what our perception of reality was and I think that's what Lewis Carroll played with as well so I think he took a lot of those words and concepts and built them into his paintbrush into his painting with his paintbrush, right? So he constructed a visual reality of these words and these concepts, and I don't think that anybody was doing it quite like that. And he had to have been influenced by them. And in the end, what you say is true. It is humorous, hilarious, beautiful, whimsical, childlike, like Alice in Wonderland, but it is dark and morbid and heavy like Poe. And you have both of these that are that are weighing in on on his art. And I think that what that both means is that it's poetry. Those two worlds combined are poetry. And that's what his work really feels to me like. His work is poetic. And he paints like a poet would write. Oh, that was so beautiful. I didn't know that there was an intersection between Carol and Magritte's work, mm-hmm. but of course that makes sense because so many paintings include something that's been descaled. And it is that fantastical experience mm-hmm. of tumbling down the rabbit hole, but mm-hmm. then also the fear of the unknown and the, again, the denial of expectation of what it is that you're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. And I think that coupled with the the heaviness of Poe that just really summarizes Magritte's visual epithet. And I think the fact also that surrealism was both a literary and a visual movement, mm-hmm. it makes sense. He almost echoes and honors the roots of surrealism more than any other artist because there's so much literature and so much exploration and subversion of language. And I think that's also why I personally really connect with him because I think it's fascinating to see how words work and function in art. And a lot of artists before Magritte did 
include words in their work, like Picasso, Majoli is written on the bottom. Mm. And so how does that enhance our experience with the picture plane? Or how does it alter our understanding? But Magritte, he uses words in a completely disruptive way. And now he really forces viewers to ask ourselves, well, what do I believe? And what is more esoteric than that? Yeah, I, I, I think that he really does, you know, because I think Dali is famous for or infamous for saying, I am surrealism, right? Dali kind of took the, took the chalice and, and said, this is me. Look at me. I am the face of surrealism. My work is the work of surrealism. But actually, if you think about it, I think Magritte was a surrealist surrealist you know what i mean i think he was the quintessential surrealist he really drops the mic in a way because like you said he embodies all of it picasso i mean dali embodied a lot of it for sure but i think he was he was uh the celebrity and the face of it for sure and certainly had those classic we talk about the initial like what was the led zeppelin stairway to heaven um Dali has that with the persistence of memory. But I think Magritte has it more. He has more hits. And I think that's the fact. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to Magritte. Peace. <laughs>